This is the Oasis Church Podcast. We're located in Athens, Ohio, and we use this podcast feed to primarily post the messages from our Sunday morning church gatherings. If you enjoy this message or if you'd like to know more about Oasis Church, please reach out to us at oasisathens at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We look forward to hearing from you, and we hope that you enjoy this message from Oasis Church in Athens, Ohio. Let's open our Bibles. It's good to be in a place here together where we can pause the current rhetoric of our world for a couple of hours and just focus on all of our attention on eternal matters, and that's Jesus. And that's, uh, that's perhaps why that line popped into my head, I'm guessing. Kings and kingdoms will all pass away, but there's just something about that name. There's really only one name to be worshipped. There's only one Savior. There's only one Messiah. There's only one eternal one that gives us the path to eternity, and that's Jesus. And so we are going to open our Bibles to Luke chapter 3 today. We're turning the page to chapter 3, and I want to pray before we get started, I want to pray for this, uh, this time that we're, we're going to uh, study together today, and then we're going to recap the story as we read through it here, the first uh, 22 verses or so. Father God, I, I thank you. I thank you so much, Lord, for this church. I, I absolutely love this church. I love what you're doing with this church. And when I, t- when I say church, I mean people. I love what you're doing with people who connect with us, whether they're connecting here in person or online. I just love it. And God, as we look today at this, this event in the history of the life of Christ, his baptism, the baptism of Jesus, this incredible section of your word, I want to ask right now, Lord, that the Holy Spirit, he would descend on us just as you did on Jesus that you would anoint and appoint and empower us just as you did Jesus so that we could experience the new life that he came to give, new life with him, that we would enjoy a new identity and that our identity would be solely in him and because of him. And so Holy Spirit, help us right now to just enjoy the scriptures. Help us to, to be inspired by these scriptures that you inspired to be written. And we ask this in Jesus' good name. Amen. All right, here we go. We're going to look at the baptism of Jesus today. So let me just, I want to give you the main characters before we read it, all right? So the main characters are these. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So the whole Trinity is present here in this, in this awesome passage. This is a really incredible passage. And then, of course, there's John the Baptist. And we know John the Baptist. We, we, we've studied John. We learned a little bit about John several weeks ago. We met him earlier in Luke's gospel when we talked about his birth. And we talked about the conception of John the Baptist through his mother Elizabeth. His dad, Zechariah, was a devout guy. He loved God. He was waiting for the Messiah, the Savior. His mom was a devout woman. Elizabeth, she loved God, was waiting for the Messiah, Savior. They were, they were uh, barren. They were elderly. They were up in years. They lived out in this rural hill, hill country. And all of a sudden, an angel arrives to them and says, hey, God has chosen you to give birth to a son, and he will be the prophetic forerunner, the messenger who would prepare the way 
for the coming of the Messiah Savior that we're all longing for, that we're all looking for, who will be Jesus. And so God opens her womb and she's able to conceive and she indeed gets pregnant. Well, sometime later, not long after this news, Mary is told that she also will give birth, but she's going to give birth to Emmanuel, God with us. God is going to come into human history as they had been anticipating, and he will come through the man, Jesus Christ, through the womb of the Virgin Mary. So these two women visit one another, and when they visit, it's while they're pregnant, and Mary leaves her town, Nazareth, and she journeys to, the, to the, some distance to the Judean hill country to meet with Elizabeth, and it says that John the Baptist even in the womb of Elizabeth, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he leaps inside of Elizabeth's womb at the mention and the presence of Jesus inside of Mary's womb. It's a really cool, uh, really cool moment. So these two boys are born. They grow up. We don't know much about their childhood, as we talked about last week, but we know they're cousins. So they're probably buddies and friends. They probably spent time together, a lot of time together when they were growing up. Uh, we don't know, like I said, Hardly anything about their early life, so we can't really speculate. We read in Luke 2 last Sunday that Jesus grew in, in uh, wisdom and in stature and in favor with men and God, but now here they both are. They're men. They're grown men around the age of 30, and that's where we are now in chapter 3. John the Baptist starts his public ministry, and he starts his first before Jesus does. There's an overlap. There's a reason there's an overlap, as we know, because he's the forerunner. He's the messenger. He's the connection between the Old Testament and the New, the, the, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. He comes at, you know, as, as the last of the Old Testament prophets and the first of the New Testament prophets. Uh, he, he prophesied uh, for many years. You know, uh, the, the, the prophecy that was going to be, or John prophesied, John told and fulfilled the prophecy, I'm sorry, that was told many years ago for thousands of years uh, of, of one who would come, one who would come. There would be, you know, one who would come. And there was 400 years of silence, and then John comes. And he is the last of, so even though he's in the New Testament, he's in, you know, he's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He is the last of the Old Testament prophets because he's the last one to say, hey, the Messiah is coming. He was the last one to prepare the way of the Savior. So with that as our, as our background, let's go ahead now and read the, first, uh, let's read the first 14 or so verses in chapter 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being uh, tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Traconicus and Lysanias and the tetrarch of Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. I botched all of those names, by the way, so I just tried to, do you notice I just tried to flow through them like I knew what I was talking about? Yeah, yeah, nope. So the word of God comes to John, John the baptizer, we know. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, 
the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hills shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of our God. So this is showing us that that prophecy hundreds of years ago that John the Baptist is now fulfilling as he steps out to perform his ministry. Verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, who bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, does not bear good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what shall we do? <laughs> what then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more taxes than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations and be content with your wages. And so what John is doing is he's saying, You got to change. You got to stop sinning. He's basically telling people, You are a brood of vipers you're a bunch of sinners repent and they're like well how do, what, what is it what exactly do you mean by that i'll tell you what, what i mean and he starts pointing them out one by one and saying here's exactly what i mean because sometimes we need that don't we i mean here's john I mean, get this picture he walks out of the woods basically and he's preaching this message of repent repent he's preparing the way he's just doing this preparing the way for jesus and john is really good at his job I mean, he's phenomenal. He's spirit-filled. He's bold. He's biblical. He's passionate. And the crowds started coming to him. People started coming. They were listening. And now, as he responds to them, verse, let's move on. Verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. So, now we know why probably there's, there's crowds gathered around them because they knew the Messiah was coming. They remember, you know, 30 years or so ago, this birth, and, and all of a sudden now this amazing, weird-looking dude is yelling at them to change their lives, and he's dunking them in water. He's baptizing them. And they're like, this is it. This is it. This is, this is him. And they start asking, are you the one? Are you the one? Verse 16, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. So everyone is around John. The, the guy, I mean, he has crowds of people around him. I mean, he is, get, I mean, he's number one on Apple Music right now. I mean, he is, everyone wants to be John's friend. He's, you know, on, on Facebook, like he's got thousands of friends. He's got the blue check mark on Twitter. Everybody knows John. They're like, yeah, they got his picture of his big ugly mug on t-shirts probably and there's he's a big deal right he's a big deal everybody's really hoping he's the guy I mean that's kind of the that's the rally cry around him he's the guy isn't he he's the one who's going to fix all of our problems he's going to be our savior it's going to be it's all going to get better now and the crowds come out to John they're like hey you know everybody and I'll, you got to get a look at him too. I mean you got to get a picture of him in your mind as well I mean because the bible tells us in others in others uh gospels that he ate bugs 
I mean, and, and we're told that he, I mean, like locusts and honey, and he wore camel hair clothing. He looked like some Jedi knight or something, right? Yeah, he's a freaky looking dude. He's, but he's scrappy and he's intense. He's very charismatic in the terms of, a, of his leadership. He's devoted and he's out here yelling at him, repent, repent. And he's really good at it. He's phenomenal at it. And crowds of people come out and they're wondering, right? They're like, okay, we've never seen anybody like this before. This has to be him. Is he the one? Is he the one we've been waiting for? I mean, since Adam and Eve sinned and God promised that a man, a, would, a male child would come and he would crush the, the head of Satan and he would redeem sinners, this must be the one. And so they all come to John. They're asking, are you the one? Are you the one that we've been waiting for? Should we then worship you, right? We should, we're supposed to worship the, the Christ. Should we serve you? Should we devote our lives to you? This is a huge moment for John in his life. I mean, it would be very, very tempting right now for John to say, wow, this is a pretty interesting idea. I've always wanted to be worshiped as God. Sure, right? Sure. I mean, that's, that, it would have been easy for John, I think, to maybe not come out and say it explicitly, but to just kind of not answer their questions, right? Just kind of let, them, let that hang a little bit. They're wondering, right? I mean, that ego, we all know that, how that builds up. But here's what he says. It's not about me at all, actually. It's, it's about Jesus. He's coming and he's greater than me. He's in fact so much greater than me that I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Now that line that we just read, uh, the strap of his sandals, not willing to untie them, culturally I think that's lost on us a little bit. It can get lost on us. Because in that day, there was a, there was a, like that happened. Like that actually, there was actually someone who would untie people's sandals. So let's, let me, let me tell you, let's, let's give some background on that though first. So they, they walked on the roads and they didn't have like nice concrete sidewalks, right? The, the, they weren't nice, clean sidewalks. They walked on roads that were dirt and it would rain sometimes and there were well-worn paths and the dirt would mix with rain and become mud and they were also journeyed upon by animals. And so you have feces and urine and garbage. It's gross, right? So now let me ask you this. How many of you don't like feet to begin with? <laughs> I mean, even from the start, you know, I mean, like even nice, clean, lovely feet, right? Even those gross you out. Right? I mean, you don't like those, right? Now imagine then horrible, nasty, funky feet, right? They're, I mean, like someone whose best foot day is still really a bad foot day, right? bunions and calluses and all kinds of jam and just nastiness and funk and stinkiness and athlete's foot and all that stuff. So start there, right? Start there. Put that foot in a sandal. And now imagine that foot in that sandal with no socks, by the way, all right? Just open sandals, walking on the road and stepping in everything that's on that road, mud and feces and urine and garbage. And, you know, how many of you would want to reach down and untie that and clean that foot, right? Just imagine that. Just imagine that. And John says, I'm not worthy to even, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. You see, in that day, students would serve their teacher. And so if they would go in someplace to get food, the students would, would go to get it. We actually see that with Jesus uh, when he comes to the, the, the well at Samaria 
The disciples say, hey, we'll run ahead with the money bag and go in and get food. Jesus stayed out and waited. And that's when he met the woman, um, the, the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. But students would serve their teachers. And, and they would often uh, do all kinds of things for them. But one thing a student would not do is when it came time for them to go into a home and untie those sandals and clean feet, even students wouldn't do that because that was a job that was, was reserved for the lowest of bond servants. And that would be the person that would do that kind of thing. So John says, now you don't understand. The distance between Jesus and me is so great that I won't even do, I I'm not even worthy enough to do the job of a, of a, of a bond servant, of the lowliest of servants. So let me give you just a real quick aside. Jesus will later sometimes say this, and I mentioned this a few weeks ago, that of all people born of women, none is greater than John, right? John, and he's talking about John the Baptist. He's basically saying John is the greatest man who ever lived. And what does John then say about himself? This is how Jesus recognized John. But how does, what is John's identity? What is John's view of himself? Jesus is so much greater than I. I'm not worthy to do the job of the lowliest servant to even just take off his shoes, his sandals. I mean, that's incredible humility from John. I mean, in a moment of great temptation, and trust me, it would have been great temptation in that moment of fame and power and pleasure and prestige, John says, no, 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 no. Don't, don't, don't put the attention on me. It's about Jesus, and he's coming I'm just leading the way. Don't get too worked up about me. I'm just the opening act here. The main show is coming. He's coming. And so, I, and I think, listen, if what's also amazing, so you've heard me talk about cleaning feet, right? So what's, well, what else is amazing about this? Later on in the Gospels, Jesus, so God himself, Jesus, we read this, you can read this in Mark 13, I believe, uh, John 13, Mark 14, I don't know. See, I, I'm horrible at that, sorry. Jesus gets down in front of his disciples, they're in a room, right? Remember, the students don't even clean the feet. There, there should be a servant there. But they're like, they're looking around. They're like, there's no one here to clean our feet. They're, what's going on? And Jesus, the teacher, God, gets up. And he starts untying sandals and cleaning feet. And so Jesus, Jesus speaks of John and John's humility. Jesus is the most humble person in the world. So if you worship Jesus, you're actually worshiping the most humble person who's ever lived. It's amazing. So we worship and lift on high the most humble of people. And so John is transitioning everything from himself to his cousin Jesus. And he says, number one, that Jesus is greater than him. Jesus is greater than John. This is one of the first lessons we should learn. Jesus is greater than John. And the second thing that he says here is that Jesus' baptism is greater than his. The baptism that Jesus will baptize with is greater than what John is out there doing. See, the end of Luke uh, 3.16 says, He, meaning Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So the big idea here is John is saying, look, I can work on the outside. Like you're coming out here and I'm dunking you in water and like you can feel it and see it. I work on the outside. Jesus actually works on the inside. There's, there's something deeper that he will do. He, he is actually going to be able to change you. He's going to, he's going to 
change you from the inside out. That's what being baptized in the spirit, that you will receive his spirit. And then by fire, a lot of scholars believe that that's probably dealing with judgment, as John is about to transition into here in a second as well. And so it's the Holy Spirit then who makes us a Christian. John is saying, look, I can, I can, you know, as you come out here and you decide and I'm telling you to repent and you're thinking about all the things that you do wrong and I'm going to dunk you in the water, that's all great. But the only one who can truly make you in Christ, the only one who can truly transform your soul is Jesus. And he'll do that through the Holy Spirit, through a regeneration process that causes us to be born again, which gives us conviction of our sin, which gives us then love for Jesus. And so, you know, the Bible even tells us no one can even say Jesus Christ is Lord, but by the Holy Spirit, like truly say it and, and mean that and own that statement for yourself. He's the one who seals us for salvation. He guarantees our inheritance with God. He gifts us then for ministry and he sanctifies us. He changes us and matures us and causes us to grow and he empowers us. That's what he does. That is who the Holy Spirit is. So when John says he, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Holy Spirit. That's what he's saying. He will change you. He, the one who is coming, will be the only one who can change you. To be a Christian, to really be a Christian, is to receive the gift of the indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And that's it. It's nothing else. You can go to church. You can read the Bible. You can say stuff. You can pray prayers even. But if you don't have the Spirit then you're not born again. This is, you're not saved. You're not belonging to God in a saving, eternal way. I mean, you can be very religious, but not internally saved. And that's what John is saying. Look, this is religion out here, what I'm doing. It's very, very visible. It feels great. I mean, it's, we got a crowd here. But what really matters is what's about to happen when he comes. And I think that's what John's getting at. I mean, John's like, hey, this is preparing you for him. I'm pre but he's so much greater than I. He's the only one who could really change your heart from the inside out. He's the only one that can take your heart of stone and, and give you a heart of flesh. He could, he's the only one who can take out your rebellion from God and cause you to submit and love God. He's the only one who can do that. So you need to really wait for Jesus for the worship. Don't worship me. So that's the second thing he says. His baptism is greater. And the third thing he says is this. Jesus' judgment is greater than his so John's judging? Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that here in a minute. So Jesus is greater than John in many ways. Jesus' baptism is greater. Jesus' judgment is greater than John's. Let's read verses 17 through 20. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So that, that might be a reference to the the eternal punishment of hell. It very, it very much could be. So with many other exhortations, this says that, you know, this, that, those are things that John said, and now Luke is saying, with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But, and here's the bad news, Herod the Tetrarch, that's the political leader, who had been reproved or rebuked by him, by John, for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all that he locked up John in prison. So Herod's like, hmm, nope, that's the last straw. We're, we're locking John up. And so here's what John is doing. He is preaching to everyone. 
I mean, he's leaving no one out. <laughs> you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. And yes, Herod, you're a sinner. Everyone needs to repent. All of us, every single person, even though, I mean, if, you're, if, you're, if you feel like you're good, if you feel like you're well-meaning, if you feel like you're well-intended, religious people even, you need to repent. And some did and some didn't. Some came out and others got angry. And he uses this analogy of, of wheat and chaff. And he's, and he's taking it, of course, from their farming society, their agrarian, agrarian society, where at harvest time, the grain would be brought into or near the barn, and they would use something called a winnowing fork that would be used to throw the grain into the air, and, then, and it would separate. The wheat would fall to the ground, and then the chaff would just blow away in the wind. And that's the idea there, so the wheat and the chaff. And what he's saying is some people are wheat, some people are wheat and some people are like chaff. And some people belong to Jesus and abide in Jesus and they, they, they take root in Jesus and others are blown away by temptation, by false doctrine, false teaching, by deception, by religion of some sort. And so here's the great question I think we all need to ask ourselves very sincerely. We need to ask ourselves, am I wheat or am I chaff? Where do I fit? Where am I? You see, sometimes the, the misperception in our culture is that everybody in the church is wheat and everybody outside is chaff. Or everybody who says something about being a Christian is wheat and everyone who, who says other things are chaff. And look, there's a lot of chaff everywhere. Sometimes in the church as well. Because the issue is people who receive the Holy Spirit and are regenerated and truly changed from the inside out by Jesus. That is what wheat is here. Being deeply committed to Jesus at the core, at the seat, at the center of who we are. Everything about who we are is deeply committed to Jesus. The problem is that it's so easy to be deceived by someone or something who is about someone or something other than Jesus. I mean, there are lots of people in this world who use Jesus' name and use his people, but the cause is not Christ. My goodness, if we've ever seen a picture of that, it's today. It's now. Using Jesus as a means, but he's not their end. Want to use Jesus for false gain, for something else, not salvation, not loving people. But there's no love and worship and enjoyment of Jesus solely, exclusively as God. There's no treasure of Jesus above all else, above everything. And look, all that is is chaff. That's all that is. Because how do you know? Well, hardship comes, blown away. Suffering comes, blown away. False teaching comes, blown away with the false teaching. Right? That's, it. That's how you know. You can see it. You can see it. We all know people like that. Don't, don't really love Jesus. It's, it's Jesus. That's all, that's all it's about. That's all it's about. That's all being a Christian is about is Jesus. I mean, people may say Jesus. They may say Jesus, they may post Jesus, but if it's not wheat that's fallen to the ground and rooted in him, in everything, it's just chaff. And I just want to say this. This is, 
I mean, this is, this is the only goal of Oasis Church is for you to be wheat and not chaff. That's it. That's it, right? And, and, and it's not hard. It's not hard to figure out how to do that. And that is put all of your focus and attention on Jesus, which means on no other man, no other woman, no other thing, no other cause, just Jesus, just the God of the Bible. That's it. John said, or, you know, Jesus says, uh, John says that Jesus, his judgment is greater, right? What's he mean by that? Well, Jesus tells us in, in the Gospel of John that he is going to be the final judge, Jesus, right? And in John 5, he says, I don't want you to think that anybody else is going to judge you. There is no one else. There is no other. I'm going to judge you. Jesus. So this is why we focus on Jesus, right? And he says, the Father has entrusted judgment to me. So you know who we're going to give account to in the end? Jesus. That's it. That's why, that's why I said at the beginning, it's so nice to get together here and talk about eternal things. Because I think it's so easy as we go through our life in the United States of America to think only about temporary things. And we tend to think that somebody else or some other thing is going to judge me. Nope, it's not about that. It's about Jesus. That's it. That's what, being, that's what it means to be a Christian, to be about Jesus. Now, John says Jesus' judgment is greater than mine. He's talking about himself, which means John is judging people. Well, yeah, of course he is. <laughs> repent, repent. I mean, as soon as you say repent to somebody, you've told them you need to change. What are you doing? You're judging them, right? So he's talking about there's a greater judgment that's coming. But I think we need to pause for a second and think about this judgment that John is talking about, right? You see, here's the truth. Somebody has the right to look at your life and say, that is sin. What you're doing is unpleasing to God. That's in disagreement with Scripture. If you say you're a Christian and you're not acting biblically, it is sin, and it's okay for somebody who is also in Christ to look at you and see that. Jesus even says that, that when you see a tree and you see what kind of fruit it has, you immediately say, oh, that's a, that's a fig tree. And you know, what are you doing? You're judging that tree. Why? How do you know? By its fruit. And so some people like to say, you can't judge me. Well, no, that's actually not true. If you're a Christian, we can most certainly judge your actions. But John says there's even even greater judgment, and that's one that we can't do. And that is we can't judge your soul. We don't know if you're truly saved or not. We can only look at your fruit. We can only look and see how you behave. We can only listen to your words. We can only say, hey, you know what? This is consistent. This behavior is consistent with what I read in the scripture. This is, this is consistent with the, with the actions of Jesus. Or no, it's not consistent with the actions of Jesus. But we cannot judge the soul. And that's what John says, that Jesus' judgment is of the soul. There will be a day when he will baptize, with, he'll baptize you with the Spirit. He's going to change you and with fire. Fire is very much correlated with judgment. Jesus will be the one who judges your eternal soul. And so we'll stand before Jesus and he'll be the judge. We'll give an account to Jesus. We'll be the one on the end of that fork, right? The wheat and the chaff. And Jesus will throw us up in the air. Some of us will fall to the ground. We abide in him. Others are going to be blown away into the fires of hell, John says. Judgment with fire. 
So who are we, right? Are we wheat or are we chaff? Do we know whether or not Jesus is our Lord and our Savior and our Christ and that the Holy Spirit is, is dwelling in us, that he is causing us to be transformed and changed? Listen, here's the great news about this. This is the wonderful news. And that is this. There is not one person on the face of this earth who would hear like this message, let's say, that I've just, that I've just been giving and confess their sins to Jesus, ask him for salvation, there's not one person that he would reject. There isn't. It's open to all. And I want you to know that. I mean, that, to know that God is good. He's a good God, and he's seeking you. He's seeking people. He's seeking worshipers all the time. He's always at work doing this. And one of the primary reasons that we come here is to say that. Is to, is to be encouraged by that, is to hear that truth and, and know, hey, this is really true. And maybe perhaps be encouraged to go out from here and tell others the same thing. Hey, you know what God is doing? He's really seeking after you. He wants to save you. He wants to love you. He wants to, he wants to bring you into his family and make you his son or his daughter. And I want to introduce to you, him to you. His name is Jesus. Jesus is the Savior. He's still in the, in the, in the business of doing this today, right now. And this not, thank goodness, not the final judgment day yet. You're like, that I'm judging you. Well, no, 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 you're not judging. Listen, Jesus will judge you, but I'm just telling you, he wants to save you. There's still time. There's like, there's a call here. And that's what John is doing. He's like, hey, he's calling people to repent, right? So there's a couple of examples here, right? The wheat are those who are repentant. The wheat, they're coming down, you know, to the water. They're getting baptized. They're repenting of their sin. And then the chaff is, they're being blown away. And that's what he's saying. And he talks a little bit about Herod. I want to skip through that. I actually had some things about Herod and what the reason why he said Herod basically took his sister and his, his 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 sister-in-law from his brother, and 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 there was all kinds of I mean weird uh, relationships there. And and so John just basically points it out and says, you know, look, the leader of us is is the big is, is also he needs to repent as well. And so here is. One of the most, if not the most amazing moments in John's life, right? John is, so what we're about to see here as we read, as we continue, is John is out in the river. There's a line of people, right? John's ratings are really high. People like him. But Herod's already to arrest him. He's ready to arrest him. He wants to come down and get him and put him in prison. But John is the talk of the town, perhaps for both of these, right? He's a very charismatic guy, but he's also getting himself into trouble by the, you know, by the, by the leader of the, of the nation, uh, of, the, of, the, of the region. And there's, and there's a long line of, of sinners coming to be baptized, basically, right? And, and they're, they're realizing that they need to be cleansed from their sin. That's the whole reason why they're coming. That's why I said a whole line of sinners, because they're realizing, hey, we need to be cleansed from our sin. That's what baptism does. That's what John's baptism is saying did. And so they're all showing up in line. And then who shows up at the end of the line here? Who's about to show up? Jesus. Now, this is a little bit unusual, right? I mean, I could see John being like, you know, out there dunking people. And he's just looking at the line like, oh, you're wicked, you're wicked, you're wicked. Hey, wait. Uh, you shouldn't be in the line. <laughs> you're in the wrong line. I know you. You're my cousin, and I know who you are. You're not, in this, you're not supposed to be in this line. In fact, Matthew records the same event in Matthew chapter 3. In fact, all uh, four Gospels record the baptism of Jesus in this event. And it says that John looked around at Jesus, and he was like, hey, wait a minute. Uh, when Jesus comes up, he's like, we should trade places. Like, you know, since you're sinless and I'm sinful, and that's the whole purpose of this here, I want you to dunk me. 
That's what John is saying. Like, for real, John was just confused about this. He was confused. And it is kind of confusing. I mean, why would Jesus get baptized? Think, have you ever thought about that? Let's, let's read it first, and then we'll talk about it. All right? Verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized... So the, I love this. He almost puts Jesus in another category. He says, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying... So here's what's going on, right? Jesus is praying, and, and we see that a lot in Luke's gospel. He prays. He's gonna, we'll see him praying in chapter 6, and in chapter 9. He prays again in chapter 11. He prays in chapter 22. Luke is very, very, very much showing us the devotion of Jesus to prayer and talking to the Father. So he's praying, and he's, he's standing in line to get baptized. Why? Why? Well, some commentators Debate this. A lot, I mean, there's a lot of commentary about this. There's a lot of debate about this point. But you ever, I mean, you ever wonder why? I mean, why did Jesus get baptized, right? I mean, he didn't get baptized because of sin, because he had none. So why did he get baptized? That's, I mean, that was the point of John's baptism, to cleanse people from sin, to get them prepared for Jesus. Well, here are some of the answers from some of the commentators uh, that I've read. Some say, well, maybe it was Jesus endorsing John's ministry. Like, you know, John got his ministry started first, and Jesus was actually going to pick up his disciples, we know, and then pick up where John left off. And so maybe this was like an identification with and an affirmation for John's ministry and sort of a handing over the baton, right? This is kind of where they tag team, and now, Jesus, you're it. For example, everyone's coming out repenting of sin, right? But... You know, so they're, they're repenting, but God's forgiveness has not yet been secured. It hasn't happened. Jesus will need to go to the cross. He's going to need to die in their place for their sins. And in doing so, he then grants them freedom of repentance, and, and that will be actualized. And they'll be able to, to do that. And uh, that comes through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. They can repent all they want right now. They can get baptized all they want. But until Jesus himself is dead, buried, and raised... There's not forgiveness of sin from God. So maybe it was just sort of showing like a sign, right? Like a signal. Jesus showing that John's ministry is foreshadowing Jesus's ministry. Well, some people say that it could be maybe Jesus. So that's Jesus identifying himself with John. Some people say maybe it's Jesus identifying himself with sinners. Like we know that he would be crucified between two sinners, right? He was going to be crucified between a thief on the cross and another guy that, that, had, that had committed a crime. So maybe, you know, why couldn't he then get in line with a bunch of sinners and be baptized with a bunch of sinners as well, right? And sort of identify himself with, with, with all the, the human sinners, right? Well, that seems like a decent point, right? We know for a fact that Jesus himself isn't sinful, but maybe that he's, you know, going to be baptized with, with people who sin to identify himself with them and to, and to show them how he's going to save them. Paul says in Romans 6 that, you know, baptism shows us that Jesus, who lived without sin, he died, was buried, and was raised in the newness of life, and that cleanses, that, that act is what cleanses us from sin. And so maybe Jesus is like going to foreshadow that act by, by doing that. They're out there repenting. Jesus kind of shows, hey, you know, through this act, there's two actions of baptism, right? Your repentance is going to be made possible. How? Well, by what my burial and death and resurrection. So I'm just going to show you a foreshadowing of that, right? So that's one. Another idea from a commentator is this. Well, maybe he was showing us all like how we need to be baptized, 
right? Maybe he was perhaps setting the precedent for what we know as Christian baptism in water today. So at the end of John, you know, at the end of Matthew's gospel in Matthew 28, Jesus says, uh, go forth into all the nations and, and baptize people. We might wonder, well, you know, who should do it? You know, is it important or essential? How should you do it, right? Well, instead of wondering that, some commentators say Jesus actually showed us how. So if we're wondering how and who and what and when and where, whatever, just look at Jesus. He was the greatest example of how to be baptized, right? And that's one, that's, that's what some people say. And then another commentator says this, and I kind of like this one. I, I mean, I like them all, actually, but he says that when a king was being anointed, they would undergo with ceremonial bathing and cleansing to prepare themselves for their, their, their reign, their, their work. And so this commentary saying that Jesus here is going, he's, he's beginning his public ministry. This is the inauguration of his public ministry. He's being anointed as king of kings. And so maybe this was like a preparatory, you know, sort of cleansing of, of that, right? All of these could be the case. Or some of them could be, or none of them could be. They'll, any of them will work, really. So, I mean, pick one if you like it, or like, well, they kind of all work, right? But here's the thing. Since we're not told explicitly in Scripture why he did, then maybe we don't really need to know. Maybe it's not that really that important. But I, I thought it would be cool to tell you all that. So, anyway, <laughs> what we do know, what we do know is this. This is the most important thing. This is kind of what we're leading up to, to as, we, as we already conclude. One thing we know is that the whole Trinity was there. You know, we sing a lot of songs. Like the one that we, we led into the sermon with, you are the Father in heaven. You are my Father in heaven. You are the Spirit inside me. You are the, my Jesus who, who loves me and died upon the cross. You know, like uh, what's the Matt Boswell song, O God of Our Salvation, where he sings God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. All three verses are about that. And, and look, there's a reason why we sing to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, because that is who God is. He is three persons. He's, he's one God, three persons. And... I, we, I don't want us to miss this. I want to highlight this as sort of the, the main theme and focus of this message. Because there, there's a, an, an ancient heresy called modalism that actually some groups and some sects of Christianity, S-E-C-T, sects of Christianity, still preach and teach, like the United Pentecostal Church, I think, still teaches this. It's a lot of the preachers that you see on TV kind of have roots in this. Uh, I don't know. There's, there's many preachers on TV now. I, I could be wrong about that. Like, I, the preachers I grew up with on TV, all right? The, one with, the ones with the evangelist hair and all the rings. When people call themselves Jesus only, like Jesus only, this is, this, that's a kind of a cue. What they're saying is that they're baptizing only in the name of Jesus. And, and they're saying that, well... Uh, it's not that God exists in three persons. It's just that, you know, it's because that's what that's what the, the Trinitarian, a Trinitarian, you know, triune God uh, theology is that God, there's we have one God that we worship, but he exists in three persons, three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But they're saying that, that there is one God, but he like puts on masks, like he takes three forms. Like he puts on, like in the Old Testament, he put on the mask and pretended to be the father. In the days of Jesus, he pretends to be the son. In the days of the New, the New Testament epistles, uh, the letters to the church, he pretends to be the Holy Spirit. And that's kind of where he's at now. But there's not really three persons 
one God. It's, it's like one person in three roles. Does that make sense? It's, it's, this is always really confusing. When you, it, it's mind-blowing to think about this stuff. But the reason I say that is because it's, it's sections of Scripture like this that show us that that's an, actually an untrue teaching. Because the Father speaks from heaven in this event. The Son is being baptized, and the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. So the whole of God, of who God is in three persons, is there, present, simultaneously. It's one of the strongest snapshots of the Trinity that the whole Bible gives for us. So let's, let's read this here. Verse 21, the second half of this verse, into verse 22. It says, the heavens were opened. The heavens were opened. So don't miss this, okay? This is really prophetic language here. You see, that's, and that's what I love about the scripture. Speculation is what philosophy and religion is. Like, like, and what I mean by that is, well, maybe God's like this and maybe God's like that. That's not what we have. What we have is revelation. And revelation is where, and I'm not talking about the, the book of Revelation, although that's part of it. I'm talking about revelation is where God speaks to us. We know that he does this through scripture. It's one of the ways that God reveals himself. This is the very word of God. This is God speaking to us as you read scripture. That's why we love scripture. That's why we teach the Bible. We receive it as the very words of God, perfect, without error. This is how God speaks to us through his word. That's why we believe the Bible. So now when the Bible says, one of the, one of the ways that God reveals himself, when it says that the heavens opened, God's going to reveal himself in a different way here to them. He's going to speak. And he only does this three times in the whole New Testament. Right here at the baptism of Jesus, and at another moment where we call the transfiguration of Jesus, where Jesus goes out and prays, and Peter and Andrew and James and John get to see him. And then later, God speaks uh, when Jesus goes to the cross. So twice of two of these are to reveal that Jesus is God, and then the, and the third one is to reveal that Jesus is the Savior through the cross. So when the heavens open and God the Father speaks, this is a big deal. It is a significant moment in the history of the world. This is incredible. So he says, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form. So scholars call this a theophany. So that, that, what that is is when the invisible God makes himself visible. There are times throughout history when God has done this. That's called a theophany. So what did they see? How'd they see the Holy Spirit? Luke says, like a dove. He descended like a dove, and then a voice came from heaven. So here's God the Father speaking. God the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus. They see him descend like a dove, and then they hear God speak, saying, you are my beloved son, with you, I am well pleased. So real quickly then, let's look at each, all three members of, of the Trinity here. Jesus goes to the water. They can see him. He's the easiest one, right? Because he's a person in skin and bones and muscle, right? Has hair. They see him. He goes to the water. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. Remember, the son of God came into human history as a man. That's Jesus. And he's praying. He's going to his cousin, John. He's the greater one that John promised was coming. The one that would baptize with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is baptized. And then, secondly, as he's being baptized, the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus in the form of a dove. Some of the Puritans were fond of saying that a dove, as well as in our day, it, it represents peace. 
And a dove doesn't have talons. It's not a predatory bird. And so it's like, it, it's, it's a peaceful bird, right? And it may be showing that, right? Maybe, maybe, that's, maybe there's reason here behind why the Holy Spirit chose to descend as a dove. That although we are sinful and God is holy and, and his wrath is against us, that this man, Jesus, is actually coming to bring peace to the world. He's bringing peace to sinners and rebels. And I'm sure also, if you think about this, as the Holy Spirit was descending and those who were standing around of Jewish faith knew the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures of Isaiah, they probably would have remembered Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. This is, this is why it's so important to read your Bible, because you'll see these things, right? In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, it says, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And they probably saw, listen, every, almost every little thing that happened in Jesus' ministry and life was prophesied like that. It was told hundreds of years earlier. And they're probably standing there going, oh, this is the one. This is him. So you remember that question, right? They came to John. Are you the one? John's like, no, no one's coming. You know, I'm not him. Don't, don't point to me. There's one who's coming that's greater than I. Well, then the, the question then would have been after, I mean, the, the natural follow-up question that is, okay, John, who is it then? I mean, we've been waiting for years. Our great-grandparents were waiting. We're waiting. Who is it? If you're not him, who is it? And then the baptism of Jesus happens, and that question is answered very clearly. Here it is. He's the one we've all been waiting for. This is the Son of God. This is the anointed one, the one who is anointed, obviously, by the Spirit of God, confirmed by the voice of the Father right here. This is an amazing moment in the history of the world. And what's amazing, what's even more amazing to me, is that even people in that day who were there still missed it. We wonder how that happens today, how people miss it today. Well, look what happened there. God the Father says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And I always have to ask myself, well, pleased with what? Like, right, you know, what's he done so far, <laughs> right? I mean, he, we don't know. I mean, from, this, from, from here forward is really all the information we have about Jesus' life. But God the Father says he's pleased. Uh, that's, that's maybe for another time. But I, I, think, I think what this does is it really reveals how Jesus, I think that you know, him, God saying what he said reveals how Jesus lived his whole life by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's why Matthew's gospel gives us this really interesting uh, caveat to it. He says that the Holy Spirit, and that when he's recording the same story, the Holy Spirit descended and rested upon Jesus as if to show that he had never left Jesus, right? Like, like, like Jesus is eternally the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, God eternal, the Son of God, and he comes into human history, Emmanuel, as God with us, and the question is then, well, when he's tempted... How does he say no to temptation? Like everybody else would have just fallen into temptation. How does Jesus say no? Well, Jesus had the Holy Spirit. He was able to say no to temptation, right? When he needed to grow spiritually and mature, how could that, how could that happen? Last week I mentioned this briefly in uh, how Paul, I talked about how Paul in Philippians chapter 2 Verses 5 through 11 says that um, Jesus came into human history as a man and he emptied himself of his divinity, right? He was still God, but he did not consider him equality with God, something to be grasped. Like sometimes we don't understand how that works. You know, he did empty himself of what? What did he empty himself? He was still God, but what did he empty himself with? Of? Well, I think he emptied himself of the continual use while he was human of his divine attributes. You see, God... God is everywhere. The Holy Spirit, he can be everywhere in all, in all of our hearts. 
Jesus chose to go to a certain place. That's where he was. God doesn't change. We know that God doesn't change. We sing about that all the time. But we know that Jesus grew up. He grew in wisdom and stature and favor with men and God. And so he went through the same changes that we all go through. He didn't cease to be God, but he did for a time set aside the continual use of his divine attributes. And it doesn't mean that he didn't have access to them. That's kind of what Paul says when he says he didn't consider. Like, he, like when he, for, and here's an example. He still forgave sins. We can't forgive sins. Well, we can forgive someone's wrongdoing to us, but Jesus forgave the inherent sin in people as a human. Well, no, as God. So he still did that, right? He still had the power to do that. But what it means, I think, as he's, as he's a human, as, he's, as he took on humanity, is that the majority of Jesus' life here on earth, he lived it fully human, even though he was God. I mean, that's how he grew. That's how he worshiped. That's how he was able to say no to sin and, and yes to God by living through, by the, he still had the Holy Spirit, even though he was human, by living through the power of the Holy Spirit. He did that, and he did that to be our Savior, but also to identify with us. And I really think that's what his baptism shows. And I think as, as we get further into Luke, as we continue to study Luke's gospel, we're going to learn a lot more about the Holy Spirit. And I think it'll help bring a lot of this together. So Jesus is baptized here. God the Father says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And the Father saying this, this is my son. He is clearly, emphatically declaring, this is the sa- he is the same as me. That's what it means to be the son of God. He is as much God as I am. He is as worthy as I am to be worshipped. He is, he is to be obeyed as much as I am. He is, his dominion exists where mine exists. He is my son come to inaugurate and rule and lead and unveil my kingdom. This is a really clear statement of deity when we hear God say, this is my son. Son of God means Jesus is God. It means he is the same stuff that God the Father is. He is the same glory, the same preeminence, the same power, the same supremacy as the Father. This is the highest claim to deity, right? I mean, I say it all the time. People say, well, the Bible doesn't say Jesus is God. Listen, he was murdered because he wouldn't stop saying that he was God. The New Testament repeatedly declares Jesus to be God. He received worship as God, and God the Father parts heaven in this moment in front of a huge crowd and says, that's my son, and with him I am well pleased. He is beloved to me. I, this is, and, and this is it. You know, I alluded to this earlier, but uh, let me, let me just say one thing about it real quick. When he says that, when God says that, had Jesus begun his ministry here? Like, what had Jesus done? Had he done anything in public? As far as we know, no. This is really important, I think. This is real, understand this. This is so important in understanding identity, right? In the understanding of identity. As far as we can tell at this point in Jesus' life, he's never performed a miracle yet. He hasn't cast out any demons, raised any dead people. Healed any sick people, walked on any lakes, anything like that. Has he resisted Satan's temptations yet? I mean, not yet. I mean, at least not what's been recorded. We haven't seen anything like that yet. That's coming. We know this. Has he gone to the cross to die in our place for our sins yet? No. So how, how could the Father be pleased with him? Like, what's he been doing? <laughs> what's he been doing that would make God say... I'm really pleased with him. 
Well, here's what I think he's been doing. Working an honest job as a carpenter. Helping his dad for about 30 years. Right? Mom said to do something. He probably obeyed and did it. That's all. I mean, I, and I love this. I, I think this is an amazing thing to consider. Because look, if, whatever you are, right? A plumber, or custodian, a mom. God's pleased with that. Whatever it is. Teacher, electrician, mail carrier, whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, regardless of what you do, the truth is we all work for God. I love the fact that the Bible records that God the Father loves the Son and is pleased with him before he does anything in his public ministry. This happened, this, this happened before Jesus did any of the great stuff that we're about to read. And listen, I love this because that's the opposite of what religion teaches. And, and again, we got to get this point. Religiosity basically says, work really hard, try your best, and at the end of your life, maybe God will say, okay, I, come on in. I adopt you. I now love you. I'm pleased with your life. But our God, the God of Christianity, the God that we worship, the God of the Bible, he reveals himself as Father, and our relationship with him begins with love and approval and affection before you ever have done anything to earn it. That's how it begins. I mean, that's, that's how my love is for my kids, right? My love for my children was like this. I mean, it's still, I still have love for them, but it began like this. I'm your father, you're mine, because I'm holding, right? I'm pleased with you. They hadn't done anything yet. They haven't done anything. They just, I mean, the only thing they've done is made me do stuff for them, right? That's it. And that's where we begin with God. That's where we begin with God. I, I want to, we'll, we'll conclude here. You know, so many people, I think, their whole life, they've wanted to hear from their earthly father what Jesus heard, right? You're my son. I love you. I'm pleased with you. And they never hear it. And this is why this is such good news. If you're in Christ, you're beloved. You're a son. You're a daughter. And the father is pleased with you. That's, that's, that's God saying that. I mean, that's where your relationship with God starts. And some of us will push back and say, oh, but I sin. You don't understand. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I have too. We all, I mean, it says in multiple places in the New Testament that, you know, I'll give you an example. In Galatians chapter 4, it says, and because you're all sons... God has sent the spirit of his son, it's the Holy, and that's the Holy Spirit, who is crying out in our hearts, in the Holy Spirit, in our heart, he says, will cry out, he says this word, Abba. That's an Aramaic word for daddy. That's the most intimate way to speak to God. Abba, daddy, father. And so you're basically, saying, you know, Paul says, you're no longer a slave, but now you're a son. And if you're a son, then you're an heir through God. So here's what he's saying. Here's what Paul is saying later here in, in, in the New Testament church. He's saying, Jesus went to the cross. He took our place. And in doing so, he gave us his place. That's what he says in Galatians 3 when he says he took on our, I mean, when on the cross, he looked like us. He put on, you know, uh, 
He put on our, our sin and took it on, on us like, like clothing, like a robe, and we're baptized into him. We put on Jesus. We wear what Jesus wears. We look like him and receive what he deserves. That's what substitution is, and that's what the cross did. He went to the cross and suffered and died in our place. And, and Paul says in another place, God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's that substitution. It's that trading of places. So that's what happens. Look, you get to take the place of Jesus in that, in that sense. Jesus went to the cross and took your place, and he gives you his place. What, what place is that? We see it all throughout the scripture, the place of son or daughter, child. And I hope you believe that. I pray that the Holy Spirit would just confirm that to you. I pray that he, would, that he would tell you today, you are my son. You are my daughter. You have been gifted with the same position that Jesus enjoyed when God spoke from heaven and said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. It doesn't mean we're a savior. It doesn't mean we're Jesus. It just means that we have the great blessing of having that same honor and that same position because of what Jesus did in our place. That knowledge, now listen, that knowledge has the power to change a lot of things, doesn't it? More than just someone looking at you and telling you to repent and get dunked, that knowledge has the power to change your life and everything that you do all the time. Why don't we pray? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I would ask right now that you would just impart the truth of the scripture to everyone who has heard it today. And I thank you, Lord, for this very clear declaration of the deity of Jesus. I thank you for your anointing of him, of our Savior, Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would now do the same, that you would just descend upon us right here and that we would know that your presence is here to, to grant to us the very role that Jesus died to give us as sons and daughters of the Heavenly Father. Jesus, thank you so much for living humbly in this earth and this place that you came to as the incarnate Son of God, living through the power of the Holy Spirit, taking our place and giving us your place. And Father, I thank you so much that you spoke from heaven, that you speak to us now, that you speak to us about Jesus, that you send the Holy Spirit, that we might know Jesus and love him and, and live like him and live to your glory and to our joy. So help us now, God, as your church, as your people, to come to know these truths in such a way that they're not just like information, but they're transformational, that we would know this and live in such a way that we would know that you love us and we give that and live in light of it. Father, right now, as we pause for a moment and take communion, as we worship and take communion, as we worship through the taking of communion, I pray that we would be very mindful of our reason for being able to enjoy this time, this moment with you. That was what you did on the cross. And so, because of that, we will sing of the cross, and we'll ponder it, and we'll say thank you as we go and receive the forgiveness that is undeserving, but it's free and available in Jesus' name.
Amen.